You're listening to In My Father's House with our pastor and teacher, Mike Venezia, Senior Pastor of Harvest Christian Fellowship in New York City, New York. In my Father's house, there's a place for me. In my Father's house, where I long to be, oh, my heart will not be troubled. I remember what you said. So listen, if you want to restore the relationship, and I know you've been hurt, I know you've been injured, and you might even be an innocent party, you might be the victim. It's hard to do the things that I'm suggesting that we do. But nevertheless, if you want to restore the relationship, the love, well then we need to start building one another up again. Tell them how great they are, even if they're not so great, nevertheless, Tell them how great they are. Are there people in your life that you struggle to love in the way you know Jesus wants you to love them? It's especially hard when you've been hurt, and the last thing you want to do is to be kind and loving. You want to return hurt with hurt, but you know deep down you've been called to return hurt with love. This is nearly impossible to do on your own, but the good news is that you're not alone. Jesus is with you and will give you the ability to love. Today, Pastor Mike reminds us how to love when it's difficult. Now, here's Pastor Mike in the book of Genesis, chapter 33, as he continues his message, Healing for Broken Relationships. you wish, you know, you receive Christ, make that conversion experience, and then you become immediately at that point like Christ. No longer sinning, no longer thinking badly of someone else, backbiting, talking behind a person's back or none of that kind of stuff, but unfortunately we're not. It's a part, you know, the whole thing of sanctification and regeneration is a process, and it continues on right up until the time it began at our conversion experience and begins and continues right up until the very time when Christ comes back for his church. Often I refer to that as the comparison game. We like to compare ourselves to other people, particularly to those who have gotten busted. See their evil deeds or the way that they've conducted themselves in an ungodly way. And then we sit back and we point our finger and we say, well, I know I'm bad, but at least I'm not that bad, you know, and then we point to that per other person. It's just the dark side of human nature, right? We shouldn't do that. Be seeking to build one another up. How do we do that? By just saying, you know, looking for the good things to focus in on, by saying good things about our brothers and sisters, tearing down rather than building up. So listen, if you want to restore the relationship, and I know you've been hurt, I know you've been injured, and you might even be an innocent party. You might be the victim. It's hard to do the things that I'm suggesting that we do. But nevertheless, 
If you want to restore the relationship, the love, well, then we need to start building one another up again. Tell them how great they are, even if they're not so great. Nevertheless, tell them how great they are, the great job that they're doing. Tell them you love them. Maybe you can't love them, but God can love them through you, right? Listen, think about it. These are the words that all of us are seeking to hear. Isn't that true? Don't you love it? I'm just using myself as an example, but I love, and you know, when someone comes up after a service and says, Mike, you know, that really ministered to me. You know, you're doing a really great job, you know, teaching the word, and I really appreciate it. I love that, you know. Just, you know, rather than doing that, just, just continue to pray for me. You know, Mike told me while we were sitting back there together, and I said to him, uh, I'm dealing with the subject of healing for broken relationships. I really feel like I'm going to make a connection with people this morning. And Mike said to me, you know, when I get up, I prayed for you. And I'd rather hear that people are praying for me than Mike would a great job, because I don't want that kind of stuff to go to my head, you know. But the truth of the matter is we all love to hear that, right? What a great job you're doing. You know, your wife, husbands, your, wife's, uh, your wife would love to hear, honey, you know, what a great job you're doing as a homemaker for our family and uh, taking care of the kids. Really appreciate it. We're all looking for those pats on the back, right? And those encouraging kinds of a word. So tell them how great they are, the great job that they're doing. Tell them you love them, appreciate them. These are the words that all of us are seeking to hear. The third step that Jacob took, the next thing we see is Jacob sharing with his brother the things that transpired during their absence over a period of 20 years. Notice in chapter 32, let's go back to chapter 32 once again, verses 3 and 5. Then Jacob sent the messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir and the country of Edom. And he commanded them, saying, Speak thus to my lord Esau. Thus your servant Jacob says, I have dwelt with Laban. By the way, Laban was also Esau's uncle as well, right? And stayed there until now. And I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male and female servants, and I have sent to tell my Lord that I might find favor in your sight. So what is he doing? He's rehearsing the things that have just gone on in his life over the last 20 years. How that God has blessed him and enlarged his borders, if you will, right? God's anointing was upon him. He was sharing with him the things that was going on in his life. How important is communication and sharing? More times than not, now I'll go back to another example of the marriage relationship, and usually the men are at fault because men aren't you know, built like women, and uh, men are usually really closed down and they don't like to express their feelings, their emotions. They don't like to show that side of themselves. I don't know, it's just simply the way that they were raised. Somehow they perceive that as being a weakness. It's not a weakness at all, though. But often I'll hear, particularly from the female, uh, the wife, you know, my husband doesn't share anything with me. He doesn't communicate with me. You know, I'm with the kids all day at home. He comes home, you know, and he plops down in his easy chair, turns on the sports channel, ESPN or whatever, and he doesn't even acknowledge me being present in the room. And how often we hear that, particularly from the wives. So how important 
is that part of the relationship of sharing, communication, the openness, the sharing of the things that you're feeling, thinking, right? Communication. Isn't that the very reason why you got married in the first place? If I can just take a moment to address our married couples. Well, I can only speak for myself, but one of the reasons why, you know, I took a bride. I was kind of sick and tired of living my life alone. And I wanted to share my life with another person. So God moved Diane into my life, and one thing led to another. And praise God, you know, we've been married now for, uh, I never get this right, 40-something years, at least 44 years now. Praise God for that. God's been so faithful. But isn't that the very reason why you wanted to get married in the first place? So to share your life with someone? You know, to share your experiences, to also comfort you in, in your losses and those kinds of experiences as well, right? Isn't that the very reason why you took a husband or why you took a, to a bride? But how far removed are we from that, right? We spent, in the beginning, we spent so much time communicating and sharing the things that were going on, our feelings, our emotion. There was this openness about the relationship. We were very transparent with one another. You know, the problem too many times is that we're just all closed up. Now, you know, just a side note, as it relates to communication, particularly in the marriage relationship, one of the most important contributing factors to successful sharing is having a sympathetic listener who's just simply not critical. Because remember, again, communication is a two-way street. There are two parties involved. So you've done something really stupid that's going to affect, let's say, for example, the marriage relationship or any kind of a relationship. It might be the work relationship. Who's a member of your team at work, right? He's a member of your team at work, and you're partnered together for this particular project or whatever. And you've made some stupid bonehead mistake, right? And so you go back to that person and, you know, confessing what you had just uh, done, and they respond to you and say, yeah, you are stupid and you are a bonehead. Well, you can cut off those sharing sessions quickly by the way that you respond. I mean, think about it. You're trying to share, and rather than being consoled or comforted, you're being wounded. It's only adding to your hurt, right? And I've heard this many, many times before. You know, someone is impatient with the other spouse. Yeah, Pastor Mike, you know, I confess my fault and that I'm not good at this particular thing, maybe uh, managing the money. And I tried it. You know, maybe I should let my wife manage the funds because I'm not a good money manager or whatever. So I brought that to my attention. I brought that to the attention of my wife, and she just raked me over the coals rather than realizing that that isn't a part of who I am or my temperament or I don't have any of those capacities to, to be able to handle our financial affairs. And so they just rake you over the coals. Hey, when there comes another situation or another problem and you try to sit down on the couch and speak to your spouse and they've just raked you over the coals and you remember that, you're, not, you're going to be closed down. Your wife is going to say, so what's new, honey? And you're going to turn around and you're going to respond, nothing. Everything is good, you know. It's just going to shut you down. And so often the purpose of sharing is to receive healing. So remember that. So there's two sides to the sharing. There's the opening up, the revealing all, the transparency, and the other 
is the sympathetic understanding and consoling. So we've got to learn to share. We've got to learn to open up, to accept, to be uncritical, to be consoling when someone bears their hearts before us. Now, that brings us to our fourth and our final step that Jacob took towards restoration of this relationship. Notice, go back to verse 4. They embraced. Esau comes running towards Jacob. Probably Jacob is like cringing. He says, oh man, the axe is going to fall now. I'm just going to get my just deserves, right? You know, something interesting here. There's something very interesting that I just thought of, and I don't have it in my notes. But, you know, the way that he departed from his uncle Laban, and when Laban caught up with him, and the way that now he is responding when Esau caught up with him. When his uncle Laban caught up with him, there was this sense of there was no guilt. Remember, his uncle Laban had changed his wages how many times? Was it 10 times? Finally, Jacob, the conniver, had met his match with his uncle Laban, right? We talked about that in one of our previous uh, messages. He changed his wages 10 times for the hands of his daughters, right? But he was very confident in the way that he, when his uncle Laban caught up with him, they stole away in the night. And uh, he took all of the flocks and all of the herds along with him and, and his daughters and the children that they had bore Jacob, they stole away in the night. And this infuriated Uncle Laban. And so Uncle Laban, with armed men, caught up with Jacob down the road a bit. But there was this sense on Jacob's part, you know, where he's very confident that God was with him. And notice the way, I don't know if, you're, if you have a chance, go back and, and read it over, that meeting that they had. He was very confident in the way that he addresses his Uncle Laban. There's a, an absence of guilt. And therefore, he stood strong. And he says, look, man, you changed you know, my wages 10 times. And if it wasn't for the fact that God interceded on my behalf, I'd still be there. You'd still be pulling the wool over my eyes. And very confident in the, in the way that he addresses his uncle Laban, which is absolutely different from the way that when Esau caught up with him, right, what does he do? He bows, right? He's sort of groveling, if you will, at his brother Esau's feet. Why is that? Can anyone tell me why that is? It's because there was this sense of guilt. He was guilty. He ripped off his brother. When he meets his brother Esau, he's bowing down on him, right? Why? Because the sense of guilt. Folks, let me tell you something. It's a wonderful thing to know that you've secured the presence of God within your life, that you have favor with God, that you're a child of God, and that God's hand is upon your life. Don't forfeit that for the pleasure in sin for a season. Don't forfeit that. You'll be able to accomplish great things. You'll go forward with you know, real confidence that God is with you. And you know, let the chips fall wherever they fall. I'm just going to go for this. I know that God is going to bless me one way or the other. So I just wanted to throw that in. It's not in notes or anything. I'm not going to charge you any extra for that or, or anything, but thought I would just mention it. Uh, the point was, we find that there was this touching. They embraced in verse 4. And so important to the relationship is touching. Now, what am I referring to? 
And again, particularly not in the marriage relationship, but just between those that you may have had a falling out with, I'm talking about touching in non-sexual ways. With married women, so often you hear, well, you know, Pastor Mike, he only touches me when, I want, when he wants sex. And the truth of the matter is, it's true, you know, for most of the guys. I mean, guys are such animals anyway, aren't they? For some of us, we don't even make that. You know, we ignore those little things. You see how far we've gotten away from the things that are really important? Beginning when you were courting one another, you couldn't keep your hands off of one another, right? Oh, man, I can't wait. You know, you would think it was like 5 o'clock or whenever you get off work, you were thinking, oh, man, I can't wait to get home. Or I can't wait to, you know, hook up with my, my girlfriend and, you know, go out and have dinner together. You were anticipating that. There was such an excitement about that. Huh. No wonder the relationship gets cold for those who are married, particularly. And then you even begin to question, did I ever really love him or her in the first place. Now, it is interesting to me, in the book of Revelation, in chapter 2, in verses 4 and 5, if you know anything about the seven epistles to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, it runs through Revelation chapters 2 and 3. These were actual churches that existed. Jesus, first of all, in these epistles, commends them for certain things that were going on, that were worth, worthwhile, but then he counsels them about certain things that need to change. And as it relates to the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, in verses 4 and 5, as it relates to that church, the issue was lost love, a coldness of love. Yes, they were still going through the motions, you know. They were still meeting regularly on a Sunday morning. They were still giving when the giving bags or whatever you call those things were passed around and you throw your tithes and your offerings or a couple of bucks into the giving bags. They were just going through the motions, but they lost the emotion. And think about the marriage relationship, how easy it is to just go through the motions, you know, of a husband or a wife or a parent, and yet you've lost the emotion, the feelings, the things that are so integral to having the right kind of a relationship. Well, anyway... The issue there with the church at Ephesus was lost love, coldness of love. And so here's the counsel. He says, nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left. Notice, they left. They left. It was something, maybe they didn't even perceive it, but nevertheless, they left it. It's with us to make sure to guard ourselves that we don't leave that first love. And then in verse 5, here's the counsel. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, so the first thing that we're to do is remember, go back to the beginning of the relationship. You know, think about when you first got saved, in other words, how cool it was, how everything was so new, everything was so wonderful. You were always the first one at the prayer meeting. Everything was so new. It was so fresh. There was this love. You just sensed the presence of Jesus within your life like you've never experienced him before. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. And then secondly, repent. In other words, just go back. That's all that repentance means. Go back, Bible study, prayer, and fellowship. You know, the, the Christian ABCs. Those are the things that lend itself to our having the right kind of a relationship with God. And then the warning 
or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. You know, the whole idea about the lampstand is a picture of the menorah. In the Old Testament, it represented Israel. In the New Testament, it represents the church. Remember, Jesus, we're, we're sort of like, uh, Jesus is standing in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks there in Revelation chapter 1. Jesus is the illuminator of that lampstand, right? And he's saying, if you continue to just go through the motions, one day you're going to wake up and my presence is going to be removed from you. You're just going to be continuing to go through the motions, but my presence isn't going to be with you. When you gather together on a Sunday, you're not going to, it'll be just cold. You'll never feel my presence when you, as you worship or when the word of God goes forth from across the pulpit. You'll just never sense my presence the way that you once did. You know, That's what he's talking about. I'm going to remove your candlestick from its holder, from its place, unless you repent. And so in order to restore the relationship, he counsels them to remember, remember what it used to be like, the feelings you used to have, then secondly, to repent or to change. Then thirdly, to go back and do the first works again. The things by which you won her, courting her. The blessings during the courtship. And so if you do these things, the relationship will be healed, folks. It might take a while, but don't get discouraged. Don't be impatient. I mean, it took a lot of years to tear down the relationship. It might take some time to build it up once again. might take a couple of weeks. might take a couple of months before things change. But we have the confidence that they will change. And God will restore. God can restore your broken relationship to a deep, full, loving relationship greater than it has ever been before. But, again, let me remind you, it just doesn't happen. It takes prayer. It takes commitment, blessing them, edifying them, sharing with them, touching them. As God works in our heart, those changes. As we relate to others to bring about healing. And then leaving it unto God. And we will be amazed at what he is wanting to do, what he will do. Now, as I mentioned before, there's another relationship that more than anything else we ought to be more concerned about, and that is our relationship with God. Now, I'm just going to put a question to you, and this is just between you and him. This is just between you and the Lord, something that I want to leave you with. If there's anyone here that needs to make an adjustment or needs to work towards restoration, right? Does your relationship with God need some restoring? Well, if it does, simply the three exhortations. Remember, repent, and go back. In my Father's house, there's a place for me. In my Father's house, where I long to be. When something gets close to an ending, we naturally turn our attention to the beginning. When a child is about to graduate, we look at baby pictures. When a beloved spouse of many years grows close to death, we go over the story of how we met. When we pack up our stuff and move away from a house, we remember the first times we walked in the door. 
And as we draw close to the end of days, it seems only fitting to return to in the beginning. We can watch as light is created in land and sea and all the creatures, day and night in the sun and moon. And when we take a look at the glorious and amazing creation of the world, we can remember that it's the same God from the beginning who is ruling over the end. We can watch in awe, remembering that the end is also good news as we eagerly await His return. And here at In My Father's House, we're so glad you've decided to spend your day with us. In My Father's House is a ministry out of Harvest Christian Fellowship in Midtown Manhattan. It's easy to get here with access from Port Authority and Penn Station on 34th. We'd love to see you. Pop over to our website, harvestnyc.org, to find times and so much more. And if you feel compelled to partner with this ministry financially, there's a link for that as well. Again, that's harvestnyc.org. While you're there, take a look around to find additional audio, a link to our Vimeo and podcasts. That's all we have time for today. We've loved spending time with you, and we can't wait to meet up with you again. See you next time here in my father's house.